Welcome to Wine Country Women with Michelle Mandreau, the podcast for wine enthusiasts who are curious not only about what goes in the bottle, but the remarkable women who make these distinctive winemaking regions so special. Each week, Michelle introduces you to a prominent woman and takes a peek inside her life. Welcome to today's Wine Country Women podcast. I'm Michelle Mandreau, and I'm talking with Sharon Harris, owner and director of winemaking for Rare Cat Wines in the Napa Valley. Sharon, it is delightful to be here with you today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for coming up. What a beautiful day. The best part of it, I'm here with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you poured me some fantastic bubbles, so um, which sets the scene perfectly for our conversation. Absolutely. So, I mean, every day should start with bubbles, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. Well, let's dive in to talk about your career, because you have an interesting career path. You started in technology first. I did. I think it's it's probably even goes back farther than that, where when a junior year abroad, I actually ended up in Bordeaux, France, and became incredibly obsessed with wine from a very, very young age. Um, but the wine was a, a really important tool for me, and it always has been when I went into business. And I was able to be really successful and be able to engage with people, quite frankly, in the tech world because I knew a lot about wine. So I started out in sales, marketing, business development for a tech publishing company and then got involved with a a search engine startup company as the vice president of sales and then went into some tech investing and some consulting for some uh, in terms of internet strategies for larger corporations. So it was a fantastic career path, but wine has always been a part of all of that, all of my business entertaining. When did you decide to kind of, dare I say, chuck the technology world and and devote your time to wine full-time? Yeah, so I started coming up here in the early 90s. I just loved Napa. I loved coming up. We would go to the early wine auctions back at that time, got involved in a another kind of a very small kind of winery. But when my company went public, I was able to leave technology and invest in, in, in wineries. And so bought a majority share of another winery, some vineyard properties. And um, and that was where uh, I was able to really launch and be full-time in the wine industry. And then from 04 to 06, I went back to the University of Bordeaux and studied winemaking uh, through a program at their enology department there. So I've got to ask, why did you choose to go to Bordeaux to study versus like Davis, which so many people do? Yeah. Well, I showed up in Bordeaux in 1983 and finished at UCLA and went back and moved back to Bordeaux. Um, studied, um, worked with a wine negotiant there, uh, worked for a two-star chef in the restaurant um, business, but I love Bordeaux. I've been in and out of Bordeaux now for about 40 years. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's one of the greatest places in the world to learn about wine. And it was unique and different. And luckily, because I speak French fluently, it was able, I was able to do that. And not very many Americans do go study Um, in France and in Bordeaux, but there are a lot of phenomenal winemakers from France who come here. So it gives you a different perspective. It gives you a a greater understanding of how people are producing wines around the world. Absolutely. It just gives you the upper hand, (laughs) I think. I don't know. I think it gives you um, maybe a different way of seeing things, a different way of tasting things. Right. So now you have this wine brand called Rare Cat 
we have to talk about the name. Where does it come from? So the name, uh, in, I started Rarecat in 2008, and we had four failed trademark attempts at the time, or I had four failed trademark attempts, couldn't find a name. My last name being Harris, there was Harris Ranch, Harris Vineyards, Harris, I mean, it was already taken. In fact, we always laugh because taken wasn't taken at the time, but then soon was quite <laughs> right after that. But Rarecat comes from Urban Dictionary, and it means a woman of such magnificent beauty, she's a rarity. So it means a rare beauty. And for me, I just love the name. Um, for me, the great, great wines of the world are, are very, um, they're temptresses. They never give all everything up right away. But when you drink them, you, you're intrigued by them. You smell them. They, they drive you back to the glass. To me, that's a temptress quality and, and inherently feminine. So I just, I just love the name. Um, and then we came up with our logo because I collect old jewelry and old fobs. And I was looking for something that was a seal where if we put our reputation, I put my name on the bottle, that it was going to be something that was of quality. And I found an old coin. Uh, it's a Carthage coin. Carthage was founded by a great woman, Tanit, and the flip side of it was this beautiful lion. And we had mountain lions up at the Calistoga property, where it was, which was our first vineyard that we planted. Um, and it just seemed like a sense of place. So that's how the brand came together. Okay. That's a great story. <laughs> Thank I you. I love it. So you've had this brand for a while. Mm -hmm. What I find equally as remarkable is that you focus on Bordeaux, Champagne, Russian River, yeah. and Napa Valley? Yeah, Napa Valley. Like the best of the best. It's, you know, I, if you think about it, if you go to where it's world-class, you can make world-class wines because mm -hmm. it really all starts with terroir. It, it starts with a, an extraordinary place. It, it, it starts with an understanding of. And, you know, it's hard to say that there's not a better place in the world to make champagne than champagne. Well, you have to make champagne and champagne, but bubbles and champagne. And, you know, it is Napa's world-class for Cabernet Sauvignon. Maybe my French counterparts wouldn't agree, but there's no greater place in the world to grow uh, Cabernet Sauvignon than here in Napa. We've got the sun hours. We've got the fog. It's just perfect ideal conditions for growing Cabernet Sauvignon. You know, I think you could potentially suggest and argue that Merlot, some of the greatest, some of the greatest terroir in the world, is Palmerol or saint -Emilion. I mean, certainly the most collected, most expensive, most important Merlots ever sold are coming from those two regions. So it's hard to not believe that that's a fantastic place to make Merlot. And of course, you know, when I think about the great um, Pinot Noirs, I mean, you can talk about Burgundy, but we have Russian River not far from here. And we have so many great places to be able to make great Pinot Noir, but it has to be that cool weather climate. And Russian River has those beautiful temperatures and those climates that you really can produce beautiful Pinots and Chardonnays out of that region. So, yeah, I think it's, you know, if you want to make something great, you have to start where, where it is great. And um, it has to start where it's world class for different varietals. So when you started your career, was there someone that that helped you along, someone that mentored you? Yeah, so I had some really great bosses in my careers. I was really fortunate to always love what I did and have, I, ha I always had fantastic bosses. I was very lucky about that. Um, I was in, involved, 
Well, I have a number of different kind of careers, but I guess the most important ones was after graduating with an MBA. I started in the tech world uh, in tech publishing on the international side of a very large tech publishing company. And that was fantastic because I really wanted to spend half my life in France and half my life in the U.S. And I was able to work with U.S. companies to help craft advertising programs for them to go overseas and spent a number of years kind of involved in the international publishing side. So even today, I can't pack up, pick up a magazine without looking at the front and back cover, feeling the texture of the paper and looking at the ads. It's just inherent within that kind of that, that love of publishing. Um, you know, I saw the internet come early and, and I took the risk to go into the internet way before I guess it was really current, um, probably about 2000, gosh, I can't even remember, 1994, 19 something back there. It's all, it's all vague at this point. And I went to work uh, with a group of people out of Berkeley and we, we got involved and started a search engine startup company. And that was a you know, that was fantastic. And it was the early days of the internet. I remember sitting around with these guys who were just out of Berkeley. Most of them weren't legally able to drink at the time. And it was phenomenal hearing their views and hearing what they, how they wanted to change the world and now looking out how they did. And being involved in technology at that time was really fantastic. And I got to travel the world selling our search, in search engine technology to companies around the U.S. And that company did very well, and I was very fortunate from that. And the wine industry, has someone? did somebody help you early on? Um, I don't know if anyone helped me early on in the wine industry. I think it was a passion, and I was very fortunate to being able to trade some stock and technology to be able to afford to be in the wine industry. I think I would have loved to have been in the wine industry in the early 80s when I had graduated and come back from Bordeaux. But there wasn't as much, uh, there wasn't as many opportunities up in Napa in the middle 80s. So nobody so, took you under their wing or, you know, helped um, well, guide think, you? Yeah, I, I would say that you know, I was really fortunate to really love um, and uh, love and wanted to encourage and, and connect with other women in the industry. So I don't know if it was one individual people, but person, but I think it was a number of women in this industry who were uh, fantastic at getting together in peer-to-peer -peer networks and sharing information and communicating. I think more recently I have two phenomenal friends who've been great mentors to me, uh, Lisa Redman and Janice Ilsley, who over the last seven, eight years have been great supporters and just you know beloved friends. Um, so even to this day I continue to share information with other women in the industry and I think that peer-to-peer -peer networking and that ability to help enhance and share information is fantastic. Well, you've been a huge champion of women and in the wine world. Yeah. Let's talk about that briefly, and yeah. then let's get back to Rare Cat. Yeah. So why is that so important to you? I think when I was in technology, I don't know when I was growing up in, in business in the 80s and 90s if women were always that kind to other women. In fact, most of my mentors were men. And most of my bosses were men, and they were fantastic and supportive. But I didn't necessarily find that among other women in business. And I chose not to want to participate in not mentoring and helping other people in business. It's not a zero-sum game. Um, and I think at the time it was. And so, you know, things have changed. So I made a conscientious decision to want to be able to support and empower women around me. It's a, a choice that I've made for a long time. 
My focus now is helping other women in business elevate their careers and using wine as a tool. I started something called Don't Give Up the Wine List probably about 12 years ago, and uh, it's a seminar that I've taught across the U.S. for the last 10 years, last 12 years, and work with thousands of executive women. And that just really delights me. It's really wonderful to be able to play it forward for other women in industry and help other women use tools to make them successful in business. It's, I mean, incredible that mm-hmm. you have been doing this for 12 years. Yeah, and um, and then you also had a wonderful initiative at one time where you took Napa women to Bordeaux, Bordeaux, brought Bordeaux women to Napa. I mean, that was fantastic. Can you speak to that briefly? Yeah, I think it was 2005. I had had gone back to study wines from 04 to 06 at the University of Bordeaux, and maybe it was 06 or 07. I was sitting in uh, a parking lot with a, a great friend thinking about, wouldn't it be great if we could take these extraordinary women from Bordeaux? There's not a great history of supporting women in France, you know, peer-to-peer networks there. And yet there were some remarkable women. Half my class was uh, were, were females, but I didn't see their influence as powerfully in the Napa and the Bordeaux world. And I thought, gosh, you know, Napa has been so fantastic to support women in our industry. It's a younger industry, of course, versus, you know, 500 years in Bordeaux. But women have played such an important part in the development of um, kind of Napa and the wine industry. So it started with, wouldn't it be great if? Uh, and, and we started something called Wine Ultra Femme. And I convinced 11 women, and it truly was uh, trying to convince 11 women from France to get on a flight with, you know, one page saying, here's what we're going to do, and to come to the U.S. in January. And I think it was 2009, 2010, I can't remember the dates anymore, that we hosted the first 11 women who came over to Napa. And so many women in Napa stepped up to help. And what um, the goal was really was a peer-to-peer exchange of information, non-competitive, getting women together to share ideas. And that's what we did. We spent a day on vineyard management techniques. We spent a day on vinification techniques and then a day on marketing and sales. And it was such a phenomenal trip. Um, I remember we were up with Heidi Barrett and when she was working at Ravana at the time, and I could see the jet lag and fatigue of the 11 women. And we were going into a custom crush uh, facility. So we had been with Jansen uh, uh, at Mandavi uh, for lunch. We had been at Spotswood in the morning. So the idea was to take them to a really fantastic family-run business, to take them to a larger um, with Jean Viev, who is, of course, um, speaks perfect French and is just such a, an extraordinary winemaker, and then to end up in a custom crush facility, which is not something that the Bordelais really knew anything about. It's not the same system. And you could see, you know, I just remember, you know, Heidi coming out and her casual, beautiful elements, her jeans, so low-keyed, and seeing these women being very tired, thinking, this is impossible. She can't make wine. This doesn't make sense to us. It's not a large estate. This woman seems so approachable. How, how could this be? And then seeing them take a sip of her wine and everything you know, just cracking for them, that all of a sudden there was, it was these extraordinary wines produced in ways that maybe they didn't understand, but it was in the glass. And then that next day, the community that was built around women coming together who'd never met each other, it was just phenomenal. 
So the following year, I took 15 women over to Bordeaux, um, hosted by my dear friend at the time who had um, owned Frank Maine and uh, hosted them at my house. I have a house in Saint-Emilion. And probably 60 to 80 women in the Bordeaux wine community hosted these 15 women from Napa, and I have never seen anything like it. The last day, we got to go to Chateau Iquem and Sandra Garbet, who's one of the most extraordinary female winemakers on the planet, winemakers of the planet, female or male. She heads up the winemaking program at Iquem, and lunch was at Chateau Iquem, and it was just extraordinary. And so in the last year, uh, we had about 30 women from around the world. We had a woman from Turkey. We had a woman from South Africa. We had the only female winemaker from Japan, women from France come over. And there must have been 60 to 80 women in Napa who hosted them from the day they arrived to the day they left, completely sponsored their trip. So it was a really fantastic thing to see other women in a non-competitive peer-to-peer environment supporting other women. It was really wonderful. I mean, you're a pioneer. I was a pioneer, but it was really (laughs) something, uh, it was wonderful to see. It was just, I learned so much. Yeah, I think it's fantastic that you were able to kind of coordinate all of this and kind of lead it and, um, and bring this experience to both groups of women. Yeah. It's amazing. What would you say is the top moment of your career so far? I had a recent, uh, so for me, wine is, um, we're a very small winery intensely. I have no intentions of ever being big. Um, that's a conscientious decision for many, many reasons. But it starts from, for me, wine is about um, forging communication, for, forging community. It's about connections is about people it's around bringing people to the table and it always has been i believe that wine is one of the most powerful calling cards it it is just such an extraordinary um, point of access to meet people anywhere in the world there's a shared love of wine um and a great case in point is this september 11th it was a, a one of the most extraordinary experiences i had met um, a man who was a three, retired three-star general. He had come, and I'd met him. He'd come to do a tasting. And over the years, he's become a great mentor of mine. He's helped me in a number of business ideas and just strategies, and, and he's just always been available as a sounding board. He left the military, was a very successful business person, and now is, he's retired. And he was receiving a distinguished award at West Point. And he invited um, he invited me to come out um, the uh, uh, the day that he was receiving his award. I got to go to West Point on 9/11 of this year, 20th anniversary of 9/11, and I have never met a group of individuals more welcoming, more warm, more loving, more kind. And there must have been five retired generals in this group. I was absolutely just hosted like I've never ever imagined any group could be and all of it was because I was the wine lady and the power of wine to open up different worlds and to be able to discover people from different concepts and different religions and different um, different philosophies and you know that's the power of wine it, it bridges genders it bridges cultures it bridges businesses and so that was a case in point of the power of wine to open up a world I was invited in so graciously that I never would have had access to before 
That is a unique moment. You would say that's one of your more recent top moments. Oh, absolutely. About four years ago, I drove across the country. I was in a car for two and a half months. I drove to um, 23 cities, about 16,000 miles, 50 wine events. This was and okay, I, wait, why, why did you drive? Why? <laughs> well, you know, because I, different perspective, I, different perspective, sure. because, you know, there was a, there was an L I have clients and friends of every walk of life. Mm-hmm. And what I was unsettled with at the time was this, this kind of vitriol of discussion that people had with each other. And this idea that there were these concepts of these flyover states. And that mm-hmm. didn't feel right to me because I have friends everywhere. I know people everywhere. So I decided, well, I'm not going to fly over. I'm going to drive. And so I took two and a half months and I drove across the country to 23 cities. It was remarkable. And my whole goal in every event that I did, some were corporate events, some were private events, was encourage people to come together to share a glass of wine, to build important concepts and conversations for their communities. If 10 people come around a table and have a great conversation and they go away and invite 10 people to have great conversations, we can get to a billion people in less than nine turns. And so to me, if we're going to build community and bring civility back in conversations, it really starts with understanding Um, different points of view and coming to the table and sharing wine. So that's what I did. And in places that were both liberal or conservative, it didn't matter. Everyone shares this longing to actually have civil conversations. So that's what I did. Drove across the country. It was fantastic. Yeah. 16,000 miles. Amazing. Well, let's talk about Rare Cat, and then we're going to move on to your personal life. How much wine do you make? We make about 3,000 cases okay. um, from uh, all of the wines we produce. They're all very small, kind of limited um, production wines. Most of them are single vineyards, but not all. Um, we make uh, we make a Blanc de Blanc uh, Champagne that is uh, Chardonnay from a single vineyard in the Cote de Cezanne region. Uh, it was my first Champagne, and I love it. I just... Um, just love it from a very specific old world vineyard that dates back to Napoleon's Minister of Agriculture. So it's a very historic, very important vineyard. Um, I blended my first rosé champagne in February of 2017 because I, for 30 years, I've been obsessed with Billy Salmon rosé, and I just mm. love rosé champagne. Yes. And so that was a really exciting project. I was felt like a kid in a candy shop when I did that. Um, it was really wonderful to be able to work with. Um, I work with the Michelle Gonet family, a phenomenal family, ninth generation, one of the most important families in the Champagne region. They've been making wine since 1804. Uh, and the two analogs, Antoine, who's phenomenal. Uh, and then we, we will be coming out with our first Pinot uh, Blanc de Noir project that we'll, um, we'll see this, this time, sometimes next year. So um, I love Champagne. Love, love, love. Um, Bordeaux, um, we work with a, a single vineyard again. Most of the work I get to do in France is a, uh, I've got the thankful and ability to do that through great partnerships. Um, Nicole Croft, who's a dear friend of mine, uh, known since 2004, made the introduction. Her family, uh, her family's or her partner's family has had a winery in Bordeaux for about nine generations. Uh, so get to work with them on a Saint-Emilion project. The vineyard is 
three soil types, uh, limestone, clay, a little bit of sand, 66-year-old vines, and we get to make a Merlot out of Saint-Emilion, which is by far one of the greatest places in the world for Saint-Emilion. Uh, we work with John Bucher and uh, Russian River. Very excited to start working with him on a Pinot Noir and Chardonnay project. Um, Chardonnay is right next to McRosty in a really incredible area off of Dry Creek. So very excited about that project. That's a newer project for us in terms of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So we're looking forward to that. Um, Napo, we've worked with a number of hillside vineyards, St. Helena vineyards, um, fires have impacted us in a significant way, um, so we're working on some new um, vineyard development projects as well in Napa. So how would you describe a Sharon Harris wine? Um, complex, elegant, and balanced. Okay. Yeah. If someone wants to come taste at Rare Cat, what's the best way to go about doing that? Well, we are thrilled. Um, after several years, um, we um, have uh, working, we now have a tasting room. We're very, very excited about that. It's on First Street across from the Archer Hotel. Um, it's a collective called Mia Carta. It opened up in May of this past year, and it's filled with extraordinary small family boutique wineries. So Rare Cat is one of seven wineries that is down the, are, that are down there. So it's a fantastic place to come. And, and Napa is so happening, but it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Our partners who opened it up and developed it use this talented kind of San Francisco architect, and the space is magnificent. And so we have our wines down there. Uh, we do a lot of private events, so we've been really fortunate to be for many, many years, and now I, I think it's something that a lot of people do, but we've been able to do a number of private events across the U.S., and so that's helped us a lot expand our brands. And, of course, last year, like everyone, um, we were able to do a lot of virtual tastings as well. So it's good to see the technology catching, ca catching up to the wine industry. Absolutely. Learn more about the women who live in wine country when you purchase one of our lifestyle books at winecountrywomen.com. Well, let's shift on to your personal life. <laughs> you ready? Yes, of course. <laughs> you live here in the Napa Valley. Yeah. At the property that we're at right now. Correct. So we're in, I would call it Rutherford. Yes, correct. How did you choose Rutherford? Well, I, I was living, it's, it's, the address is St. Helena, and I love St. Helena, and um, I love this property. I bought it in 2008. Um there, uh, Andy Blackwood and, and Sean Rombauer uh, lived here before and knew. Um, funny enough, our kids were uh, had uh, were familiar, so my youngest child had come here for birthday parties. Um, so when the property came up on the market, I was really excited to be able to have the opportunity to purchase it. With the epic views, it's magnificent. But sitting in this barn, I was looking for a place where I could have my office, and this barn is pretty extraordinary. It is. Um, and so... I have a 2,400-square-foot office where um, that I've filled with all these eclectic pieces that I've had over the years or family, you know, family art, and um, it's just been a perfect place for our family. So how would you describe your decorating style in your home? So the house is a little bit more modern. Um, 
What's the primary color? Oh, gosh, white and gray. Okay. <laughs> okay, it's contemporary and white and gray. I got that much. White Is there art on the wall? Lots of art. <laughs> yes, yes. In fact, when we were redoing some of the inside and painting it, my brother, who's hilarious, he's going, everything's white. Everything's white. White, white, white. I said, give me it. So um, I use I use art to bring color to the house because, to me, art is just stunning. It's like wine. It just... You just fall in love with art. There's no, it doesn't have to, you don't have to know the background to fall in love with a piece of art. Just like wine, you don't have to know the tannic structure of wine to, to fall to, in love with wine. Exactly. So to me, art is just delightful. It just, just, it just makes you feel so good. So the house is filled with lots of different paintings and different pieces of art and um, lots of books. To me, books bring color and warmth to house. So there's bookcases and books everywhere and yeah. So Do you we, have a favorite artist? No, I no. don't know if I'm so uh, well. Um, uh, one of my favorite artists who lives here is Matt Rogers. How could you, anyone not love Matt Rogers? And he shows his work here in Saint Helena. Mm-hmm. Um, he's stunning. But I can't say other than um, to me, I don't necessarily have a favorite, famous uh, favorite artist. Favorite. No. When you have a chance to kick back and relax, which room do you go to? Oh, my bed. <laughs> my bedroom. <laughs> I have the most extraordinary view. I can see Okay, well, balloons. we have to ask about the view now, right? What do you look at? <laughs> I wake up and I see balloons out my window. Oh, uh, perfect. Yeah, I, I can, Every I morning, tell, right? Yeah, people should call text me, and I can give them the weather report. I can give them the traffic report on Highway 29, and I can tell them how many balloons are up in the sky. Every morning. <laughs> Every morning. Your uh, St. Alina report. There you go. Do you have a hobby? Do you collect something other than art? I love tennis. Tennis is, you know, um, I just, I I love tennis. That's probably, it's not a, it's not something I collect, but it's right, something but it's that a I, hobby or it's, it's a hobby. Yes, yeah. something that you like to do. do you, did you ever play competitively? Uh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, Linda. Yeah, I have a friend who did. No. Are you a doubles no. player? Or doubles, or doubles, are? yes. Mm-hmm. But as, I just love tennis. Yeah. So that's, um, that's. but I try to play as much as I can. Um, I can't say work. Uh, I, I would say that work pretty much gone in the way of some of the tennis. But now my goal is to play a little bit more tennis. But even when I drove across the country, I brought my tennis racket and played um, play tennis in different places. It's the best place to go to meet people too. You just dial up, look for a tennis club and, you know, go, go. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Is there something that people might be surprised to learn about you? Something out of the ordinary, maybe something that you did as a child. Do you rappel down mountains? Do you skydive? I don't know. <laughs> no skydiving. I did climb Mount Whitney with one of my best friends when I um, about four or five years ago. That was and what I and that was hilarious because I just offered to go for a hike with her and I didn't realize that she wanted to go hiking Mount Whitney. So that <laughs> like, surprise, surprise. <laughs> Wait a minute, like Mount Whitney, like that really tall mountain. Oh my um, and it, and so that was hilarious because I actually don't like to camp. I'm, I mean, my, I love to sleep outside. I sleep outside all the time, but all I right. like to sleep outside on a beautiful mattress with a down comforter with a bathroom <laughs> close by. So right. I can't, but I do love glamping. sleep. I love glamping. I <laughs> yeah. love sleeping outside. 
Um, I love burning burning things in the fireplace. Um, I love burning barrels. There's nothing more joyful than actually burning a French wine barrel. That's it's just the aroma. Oh. Everything about it is just phenomenal. So I love sleeping outside. I love fireplaces. Um, I just, yeah, I love barbecues. I just love, you know, you know that maybe it's growing up as a California girl or something like that. But I just love being outside, eating, drinking, sleeping outside. outside. Yeah. Okay. As long as it's glamping. Yes. <laughs> as long as it's not um, on the ground. On, uh, yeah. On a mountain <laughs> away from running water. <laughs> We're in wine country. Mm-hmm. I have to ask, what do you like to drink at home other than your own wines? Yeah. Are you a wine girl or will you have the occasional beer or cocktail? Yeah. So I'm I'm definitely a wine girl. I mean, but I do um, I uh, I do love cocktails. I like aperitifs. I, I am a huge fan of aperitifs. Um, probably started with Lili and Pinot de Charente when I was 20. And so I'm just a huge fan. Just the whole thing about sitting outside the casual, amazing kind of the botanicals that you find in beautiful aperitifs. But as a, I would say my first drink of choice is always wine, as mm-hmm. long as it's great wine. Um, I definitely, um, I definitely love champagne. It's not just my, I mean, I started to get involved in champagne because I was obsessed with it. Uh, Igliore is probably one of my favorite champagnes on the planet. I love both Pinot and Chardonnay based champagnes. I love Chasson Montrochet. So, I mean, if I was to look at Burgundy, which I love, that would be the region of choice for me. I just absolutely adore it. Um, Gosh, I mean, I mean, Napa cabs like a velvet in my, you know, right. I just adore, <laughs> love, love, love it. So, okay. yeah, but so I, I would say wine is probably my drink of choice. And then if I can't have a great wine, I'm probably going to uh, choose a really good beer. And my favorite is um, Belgium Farmhouse Ales and um, just love. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Okay. Last question before we wrap things up. You've kind of touched on this uh, here and there, but is there a meaningful trip, maybe minus France, that you can share? You've had a lot of great experiences in France, but I'm wondering if perhaps there's another trip that you may have taken that has great meaning, that brought great meaning to your life. Um, I had the great joy uh, for a number of years traveling with uh, three girlfriends of mine and, and possibly will uh, hope to we get to do that again this next year. But there were three trips we took that were stunning, and those are some of my favorite trips we probably have done. We, uh, One of my friends was living in Japan. She happens to have Japanese ancestry, and she put together a trip that we got to go to Kyoto and had a shrine meal that was maybe one of the most extraordinary meals I've ever had in my entire life. And to see those beautiful shrines in Kyoto, that was extraordinary. Um, we got to go to Morocco, and that was a, an, that was an amazing trip, just the colors and the culture and the markets and everything about that. Um, I got to, I've been to Istanbul a number of times, and Again, the vibrancy of seeing the Sophia, which was both, um, you know, has changed history and changed religion so many different times and being in these old, beautiful establishments and getting to see some of the uh, ancient history there. Um, Gosh, I Gosh, those are three great places. Yeah. And sounds like fantastic. Great experiences. Well, let's wrap things up with five quick questions. Okay. Ready? Yes. They're really (laughs) lighthearted. Uh-oh. 
What's your favorite flower? Oh, a calla lily. Okay. What kind of car do you drive? A Subaru. Okay. What's your favorite holiday? Christmas. Who's one of your favorite actors? Brad Pitt. And what would we find if we looked in your nightstand? Books, aromatherapy, and Kleenex. There you have it, <laughs> Sharon. So much fun to chat with you today. Thank oh, you. Thanks so much for having me. Visit winecountrywomen.com to join our exclusive list so you can be the first to learn about upcoming offers and events. Grab a glass and join us next week for a new edition of Wine Country Women.